This new mission field that God has told us several times in the Bible that we're to leave a legacy of faith for our our children's children and their children. It's almost a threefold command that we would we would leave a legacy uh, for those who've yet to come. And we may never even see them, but yet the seed that we plant in our own grandchildren will be continued on as they become godly men and women. Welcome to the Christian Music Archive podcast, conversations about Christ, community, and music. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. One of the reasons I started the Christian Music Archive over 20 years ago now was that I wanted to document the legacy of the Christian artists that I appreciated. As I dug deeper into the lives and ministries of these men and women, I began to realize that a musician's legacy is much more than just the sum of the albums and songs that they produced. Many artists have a cause that they support. Some legacies are defined not by the success of their careers, but by their failures or struggles. But regardless of the individual's story, they are leaving a legacy. Today, I'm talking with Scott Wesley Brown about his legacy, and I must admit I fell into the thinking that I find a lot of the music industry does. Let's talk about your legacy in music. (laughs) And if I had stuck with that, I would have missed what very well could be the biggest and most important legacy we all have, that of impacting our families. So, while this podcast is designed to look at the stories of musicians, I'd invite you to join this conversation about how Scott's legacy is still being written. The sum of the music he has released is definitely part of that legacy, but it is really so much more. Welcome, Scott. I know that many of our listeners know about you and your music, but I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening that probably have never heard of you. So let's talk a little bit about who you are. Now, you've been making music for quite a while, about 50 years, if my calculations are correct. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds so long. Golly. Well, it just means you have a big book. <laughs> yeah, I do. Oh, yeah, I have. I started in, in 1974. And then really launched it in 76. So you were in the uh, kind of the tail end of the Jesus movement and getting into the start of CCM, so to speak. Right, yeah. Yeah, I started back, and for those people who might remember, uh, my first manager was uh, Larry Norman. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. And, oh, uh, fun. That was back, and he had a thing called Solid Rock Records. And it, yeah. was, it wasn't really going anywhere, but... It was uh, myself, Randy Stonehill, Mark Hurd, and Steve Camp, and uh, we were the we were the the guys that uh, he was basing this whole record label on, and and eventually I think he got something out on it, but uh, by that point I had gone off to another label, and so had Steve. So anyway, but that's when I started back with Larry back in about the about nineteen seventy three. Uh, okay, was when I was with him, and then I started doing my own recording in about 74 I had an album come out that was an independent album and then 75 I signed with a label called New Pax which was a, led by a guy named Gary Paxton who right from people who don't know who he is if you've ever heard the song Monster Mash 
Yep. They play it every Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Gary uh, ran that label, and, and I was on that label with Don Francisco and uh, oh, several other people were on it. I can't even remember. It's been so long. Weren't Farrell and Farrell on that label for a while? I think they might have been, yeah. And uh, But that was kind of a short-lived uh, experience because then I got an offer from Billy Ray Hearn, who mm. had just started um, – Sparrow Records and had just signed Keith Green. Uh, the, as a matter of fact, the day that I auditioned, he he brought Keith Green with him to the Jesus Seventy Six Festival, oh, yeah. and um, in Pennsylvania. And uh, I was on stage and I was actually auditioning. And my backup band was a group called Glad, and oh, yeah. Murr Records was there. And Murr liked Glad, and Glad had a special little showcase, so they went over and heard them and signed them and. While they were signing with Murr, I was signing with Sparrow. And so that ended that relationship. <laughs> Unfortunately, they were a super band to play with and great guys. And yeah. Uh, anyway, but uh, but Billy Ray said, I brought this young guy with me named Keith Green. I was wanted to check him out and see how he does live. And of course, he blew the roof off the place. Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, but that's how all that got started with Sparrow. And that really became my home for, for most of my recording life. I was there until, I guess it was into the 90s that I was still with Sparrow and then switched over to Word. So anyway, interesting little tidbits for those who really care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how did you actually get started in music? I mean, was this something that uh, your parents were forcing you to play uh, guitar or piano or? No, no, actually I might, when I was like three or four, my grandmother had an old piano and I would just bang on it and and uh, everybody thought it was banging, but my dad kind of <laughs> thought, you know, maybe he's got something there, uh, something that sounded like a chord every once in a while would come yeah. out. And then I got to sixth grade and I had taken up the guitar and I formed a little band uh, for a talent show in sixth grade called The Surfers. Isn't that funny? I was on the yeah. East Coast and I <laughs> I uh, started a group called The Surfers. And it was because mainly I was the only guy in elementary school who had an electric guitar. <laughs> and uh, so everybody wanted to be in my band. And so uh, that'd be kind you know, when, when I got up on the, uh, the stage in the cafeteria and all of my uh, sixth grade, um, you know, students, particularly the girls were screaming and hollering. And, you know, I thought, hey, this is this is pretty neat. I like this. <laughs> and uh, so I decided because I, I sort of was tempted with the drums. But then I realized, nah, the drummer's in the back. So nobody sees <laughs> Nobody sees the drummer, so I think right. I'll, I'll be the lead singer and guitar player. And so from there on, I was in one band uh, after another, and, and sang in the church choir, and sang in my school choir, and anything I could do that was musical. I had tried trumpet in the in the junior high band, but that didn't work out real well. But uh, anyway, uh, so I was really totally engulfed in music, and then when I became a Christian in the summer of 1970, um, right before my senior year in high school. Then then my music took a real turn because I wanted to use it as an opportunity to share Christ. And uh, right. so there, that's where that began. And so had you been writing music through uh, grade school and high school? Or? Yeah, actually, it's interesting because I was failing uh, in sixth grade. I was failing English. And we came to a section in English where we were going to do poetry in the teacher assigned every student to go home and write a poem and just to see how they would do. 
and she liked my poem so much that she read it in front of the class. Oh, wow. And then she said, you know, Scott, she said, will you write me a poem every night and you bring it in and I'll work with you on the grammar. And so uh-huh. she did that. And by the end of the year, my poems had turned into songs. And mm-hmm. I really look at this sixth grade uh, teacher, Mrs. Brewer, who we don't know where she is. I've tried to find her and actually did an article about her in Guidepost magazine. Um, but we, we tried to find her, you know, to let her know just what an impact she had on my early stages uh, in poetry. And but anyway, those turned into songs. And, and then I you know, kept continuing to write. Um, and uh, when I became a Christian, they turned from, uh, you know, mostly love songs about, you know, dating and, you know, things that you fall in love in high school, those kind of songs. Right. They turned into songs, you know, proclaiming Christ. And, uh, and, and although I still write a love song now and then, you know, I've, I've written them for my daughters who've fallen in love and lost boyfriends. And, right. you know, yeah. and I, I've written several love songs to my wife and several wedding songs as well, which uh, have been used in a, quite a number of weddings around the country, which is exciting. So anyway, that's how all that got started. Well, you know, I find it interesting that a lot of people uh, start out writing love songs and so forth. And it's interesting to me because one of God's commands is for us to love one another. And is it a coincidence that this gift that he's given us of music is often tied to this gift he's given to us of love? And I just find that an interesting thought. So, well, you talked about high school. uh, You found the Lord. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing that story. Well, I was... uh... I was the president of my youth group at church. I didn't know the Lord, and one of my best friends became a Christian. Uh, he called himself a Jesus freak, and he freaked all of us out. So that was, <laughs> that was something we, we didn't know how to respond to. We were going to a, a church that was just more the social gospel mm. and uh, good people, but just not really, not really uh, connecting with what it meant to be a Christian, a follower right. of Jesus. And and Kirk came and uh, started witnessing to everybody. And after a while, we wanted to get rid of them. And, but uh, we were going on this uh, youth group retreat to Virginia Beach, Virginia, at the end of the summer, right before my senior year. And and at the last minute, our, the counselors who were going to go with us, uh, they canceled uh, the couple that was going to chaperone our, our right. group. And so the church said, well, you can't go. And nobody wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody wanted to, to deal with us for a week at the beach. And so the only option was Kurt came up with this idea to get this pastor of his church that he was going to, his new discovered church, um, which was a very Pentecostal church. Okay. And this guy was a real preacher. And see, we were a Presbyterian youth group. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so it was amazing that he... He was coming, and he said, I'd be glad to do it. And I thought he was just going to preach you know, our ears off, but he right. didn't. He just was a guy that just spent time with us and loved us and you know, chatted with us. He was interested in what we were going through and our thoughts, and really a wonderful guy. And, uh, and so while I was there at the beach, uh, earlier that summer, I had played at a revival, tent revival meeting, just because... I was a guitar player, and I'd learned right. some Christian songs. And one of the nights while we were at the uh, the beach, I ran into this, uh, uh, discovered this Christian coffee house, and there was a band up there playing. So they were giving away free soda drinks, so we went up there to get that. <laughs> and I heard this Christian band. I thought, oh, hey, I know some of those songs. 
And so uh, during one of the breaks, I went up, found the manager of the coffee house, and I said, hey, you know, I'd love to play here. You got some uh, room to stick me in? And he goes, well, tonight we're pretty filled up with the band I have. He said, but if you want to come back tomorrow night, just meet me, you know, 15 minutes before we open and just sing me a song or two. And, you know, yeah. And I said, okay. So I showed up with the whole youth group and uh, I was on the back steps and I sang a song and he said, oh, that's great. Okay. Well, why don't you go up and, you know, can you do 45 minutes and then take a break? I said, yeah. So I went up and I just sang all these songs that I'd learned at these revival meetings. Mm-hmm. And uh, then at the very end, I gave an altar call. Oh, wow. And um, and I can't remember to this day, because people have asked me, did people come forward? I can't remember. I just remember saying the same words that this preacher had preached at the revival meetings I was right. at. And I thought I was kind of doing the Lord a favor by doing that, because I thought, well, I'll just help these Christians out, you know. And uh, so during the break, the manager came up and he said, uh, Scott, that was fantastic. He goes, how long have you been a Christian? I said, oh, I'm not. Oh, wow. And he said, what? You're not? He said, you just gave an altar call. And I said, well, didn't you want me to? I thought it would help you out. <laughs> he started yeah. laughing. He goes, he's a well, brother. He said, well, I appreciate it. But he said, you, you need to come to Jesus. And uh, he challenged me to do that on the next set to give my heart to Christ. But I chickened out. I couldn't do it. Yeah. But, but when I got back to the house that we were all staying at, um, down the road a piece across from the beach, I remember this pastor, this Pentecostal guy was on the rocking chair. And he was just smiling like a Cheshire cat, rocking back and forth and just looking at me. He said, man, I heard what you did. Yeah. I said, yeah. And he said, you know, um, you need to do that. You need to come to Christ. I said, well, I, I, I know, but I'm not sure. And he says, listen, Scott, he said, a bunch of your buddies, they were obviously impacted by what you shared. And they went, they're all crossed on the beach right now, giving their hearts to Jesus. Why don't you uh-huh. go over there with them and do the same thing? And, and I said, really? And I said, okay. So I went across the street and I walked down on the beach down by the ocean and I didn't see anybody. And then the moon, you know, that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember I just started crying and I just said, Lord, I, I don't know how to do this right, but I really do want to know you and I want to walk with you. I want Jesus to live in my heart and gave my life to Christ. And it was August of 1970. Wow. And um, so I, uh, I became like that preacher. I just wanted everybody to know. And uh, that move that changed my music and moved me in a whole different direction than where I was headed. So that's where it all took place and how it began. That's an incredible story. I've never heard of anybody giving themselves their own altar call. So to speak. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. a little weird, but you know, it proves that God uses uh, all kinds of things to Absolutely. help uh, get us straight Absolutely. up. Absolutely, He does. He does. Oh. So, so that was this in seventy, right? And then right. four years later, you recorded your first album, or three years later, you recorded your first album. Yes, in nineteen seventy-three. So you had obviously over that three years decided. I mean, like you said, this is music that I I need to tell people about Jesus. Were you doing more like coffee shops and stuff, or just singing in church, or how was that working? Well, I mean, coffee shops at that time were pretty much the only outlet for Christian artists. Uh, to be able to sing at church wasn't quite ready in the early 70s. Um, we we were able once in a while to do a folk hymn, you know, like Kumbaya uh-huh. or Michael, right. Michael Row the Boat Ashore. I mean, that was where the church was at. 
And we wanted to bring drums in. And that was, oh, no, you are <laughs> not bringing drums into the church. And uh, But eventually the church started opening up and being more acceptive of that. And they started having these Jesus festivals. And I got to sing at a couple of those in the, in the mid-70s and uh, had recorded that first album and then got my contract with Sparrow. And then that just, and I, I did a wedding song called This Is The Day on that mm-hmm. first first album. And that really took off. And um, a lot of weddings, people used it. And then uh, radio picked it up. And, and so uh, that's really which kind of helped. And I had a couple of other early songs like I'm Not Religious, I Just Love the Lord, and right. I, I Wish You Jesus. And those took hold. And all of a sudden, I'm, you know, where I was just playing in a one or two state area, um, I had people finding my phone number and calling me up and saying, hey, you want to come up to uh, Minnesota? You want to come down to Texas? And I'm thinking, wow, this people actually like me. <laughs> they like yeah. these songs. And my dad was elated. My dad was the one who just really contacted uh, Sparrow and got Billy Ray Hearn at the time, who was the president and right. the guy who founded it and got him interested in my music and and uh, was there when I signed my contract, uh, actually on a on a napkin, I believe it was at, wow. at this festival. And um, so, um, yeah, and then and then you started getting um, churches inviting artists to come in and colleges. And I was on the college circuit for, for many years singing it mostly always Christian colleges, a few, right. a few uh, universities, the, you know, the Christian uh, fellowships would have me come in and other artists. And, and then you started having more and more concerts being held at civic centers and uh, places like that, which was exciting. So it just kind of grew. It was amazing. I never had any of it imagined that any of it would have happened. Well, now you, a lot of your songs I know were recorded by other people and like the Imperials and Amy Grant. And I don't, don't I remember hearing like Placido Domingo even recorded one of your yeah, songs? Yeah, that was amazing to have this famous opera singer. I, when they called me up, when Billy Ray called me up and told me, he said, are you sitting down? I said, no. He said, you need to sit down. And I didn't. He said, Placido Domingo just recorded one of your songs. And I'm wow. thinking, who in the world is Placido Domingo? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no clue. <laughs> but uh, it turned into uh, like a triple platinum album. And wow. was, he did it with John Denver, which John Denver was one of my early uh, influences in music. And so I was delighted that I had a song on on an album that John Denver was actually on it. And uh, that's yeah. So that was exciting. Yeah, to have that. And then. You know, and I never really wrote for other people. Just somehow my songs would get out to different uh, producers and people, and then they would say, "Hey, let's let's let so and so." Yeah. The only person I actually wrote a song for was uh, Sandy Patty. Oh. And um, they they asked me to write one for her, and uh, I can't even remember what the name of it was. <laughs> <laughs> so the songwriting was kind of an, a side effect of your record contract with Sparrow, then. Yeah, I mean, and they they own the publishing, and of course they they wanted other people to record the music too because that yep. helps them builds their 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 publishing company. So we had a number of cuts through Sparrow, and then I eventually left Sparrow uh, on the publishing side and signed with a Nashville-based uh, publishing company where I lived at the time, 
And then they, they actually were guys that we had all these different writers. And I mean, some of them have gone on to be really, really extremely successful songwriters and write for a lot of major country artists. And then Steve Curtis Chapman started in that little room that we used to write in. And he hmm. and I wrote a song or two together and, and other artists. And so that, that became kind of my publishing hub for maybe the second part of my, my career. So do you, but you still think of yourself more as a recording artist, not a songwriter per se, right? Uh, yeah, I would think so. Um, I mean, I still write a lot, but my oh, songs, sure. my songs now are just independent, and you know, they I put them on YouTube and they're on iTunes and all of the uh, Spotify and some of the other sites. But you know, they're not as far reaching because I don't have the giant uh, machine behind me, right. um, you know, to, to really push those songs. Well, and the whole industry is changing, and some of that machine has changed too. Yes, so. <laughs> right, it has. Well, I was first introduced to your music in the the late 80s. I was a DJ at a radio station in Boise, Idaho, and was playing your music there. And the thing that I always thought is I always thought Scott Wesley Brown is this missions guy who uh, writes songs about missionaries. Um, right, right. And because you, you were actively involved in a couple of different mission organizations. Isn't that correct? Yes, that and and it still is today. One of my greatest passions is uh, the whole missionary enterprise because I, I really believe it's not an optional thing that we kind of can can get involved or not. That uh, the commandment to go into all the world is for all of God's church right. to be participators, uh, either through prayer or financial support, are actually going. And um, and so I did travel. I've been to over fifty countries. And most of them uh, half a dozen times. And the 80s and, you know, the 90s were really big years of travel for my, myself and my family. I brought my kids with me and my wife and, and uh, wrote a lot about uh, outreach and, and uh, you know, witnessing for Christ all around the world. And, right. You know, and so that became a major thrust um, of my life for, for the two decades at least. So were you going as a missionary or were you going as uh, supporting missionaries that by taking music to them or what was what was that looking like for you? Well, I, I really wasn't a missionary in the proper sense. I, I called myself a musicianary mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. and, 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 and would go and bring instruments and do concerts and encourage the missionaries at their bases and uh, we would do outreach concerts, like you know, if I went to Japan, I would sing for all the the, the missionaries who were there. We'd have like a house concert or something, yeah. or in a little chapel. But then I would also do outreaches at the universities, and they would go and and uh, you know the same in many other countries. And uh, we were we were just burning the road up or, or the the skies, yeah, literally just flying. I mean, all yeah. over the world and. Uh, and it didn't work real well with the record companies because, you know, you do an album, they want you to tour the United States. And I'm right. saying, hey, I'm going to Nigeria. They go, what? <laughs> Nigeria? They don't have records over there. I, was, I know. Yeah. Maybe they will someday. So, <laughs> uh, And there was, a, there was a guy at Word Records. He's no longer uh, here. He's with the Lord. But Ted Blamire was the head of the international distribution for Word. And Ted said, you know what? Scott's out there creating markets. Ah. So, you know, he had a real passion for the nations and he understood it. 
And so he would he would say, you know what? He's doing he's witnessing the people, he's sharing the gospel, he's encouraging missionaries, but he's also carving out a new market for our company. Hmm. And so some of the guys at Word, they say, Oh yeah, well that makes sense, you know. And it it was a kind of a pioneering effort. Right. Uh, right. But uh, you know, because when I went over to many most of those countries, I gave my albums away. Right. And um uh, you know, and they didn't have record players. They they did have cassette players. And so we would just make all these cassettes. And the record companies actually, both Sparrow and Word, the two labels that I was predominantly on, uh, donated a bunch of songs royalty-free. And we made, a, wow. we made a whole ton of cassettes with those songs. No royalties. Nobody had to pay anybody. And uh, we took them out. And we just gave them away to people or charged them like maybe 10 cents. Right. Because that way they would value it. Right. And um, and so that was one of the ways of getting some Christian music out there. And and then in Asia, it was really funny because uh, there was a guy over there bootlegging all these Christian albums. And uh, he he was just selling thousands of, of albums, cassettes huh. at the time. And you would get these see these cassettes and it was a totally different picture. <laughs> It oh no! Usually a blurred picture. He'd taken it from a magazine or <laughs> and stuck it on. And they were the horriblest things. But the sound quality was pretty decent. And I remember Sparrow Records thought this guy is just ripping us off. What are we going to yeah. do? And then one of the guys at Sparrow went over and met him and saw his apparatus and said, "You know what? Instead of trying to shut this guy down, we need to legitimize him." And and so they made him their legitimate distributor of Southeast wow. Asia. And now he's the biggest distributor of Christian music in Southeast Asia. And it's all, so cool. all done legally. And it's great. And I, I've worked with him and been to many countries, the Philippines, Taiwan, uh, you know, Hong Kong, uh, gosh, all over Malaysia and Singapore. And so, you know, it's been exciting just to see how Christian music has grown and, and uh, spread throughout the world. And people are hungry to hear it. They are. And and a lot of them have their own, you know, style of music, which I always encourage them to do. You know, don't yeah. don't just try to get up on a stage and sound like Sandy Patty or Stephen Curtis or Michael W. Uh, sound like yourself. Write your yeah. own music from your own country. And now we're beginning to see that. And particularly in countries like Australia now with, with uh, mm. uh, what the movement over there in Christian music. Uh, from Hillsong has just brought their music to the world. Right. Although it's very s similar in the sound, the, the style of American music. But there are other countries that are producing their own music in Japan and and um, and in Africa. They're doing their own Christian music, and it's it's really taken hold. It's exciting. Well, I don't know about you. I I was born uh, in the mission field. Uh, my parents were missionaries. Went back as a college student to kind of visit where I came from and went to some of these churches where they were doing their own Christian music, things that they had written. And I tell you what, I think we as Americans have lost something in our singing to the Lord. These are people that it is obviously a bottom of the heart. It's a, it's a whole body experience to watch them sing praise to God. I've seen it in South America and Bolivia. I've seen it in Haiti. Just the 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 zest right. and the zeal that people have for bringing music, singing praises to right. God is just infectious. Yeah, it really is. And I remember I was at a giant youth rally in Mexico C City, and um, 
there were there were some contemporary bands there playing, and they they sounded like American bands. They were just kind of copping the same sounds, except they were singing in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Spanish, and there there was this one guy who was going to do go up and do a mariachi kind of a thing, and I thought, oh man, the kids are probably going to boo him off the stage. They're going <laughs> to they want to hear rock music. Yeah, but he got up and he did his thing, and it was their traditional music, and he blew the roof off. I mean, yeah. people were ecstatic. And I thought it's connecting to their, to their, their, their heart language. And that's why I think it's so important that, that these nations that enter into, you know, the music thing uh, is a way of outreach that they don't forget their roots. Don't forget right. their own, their own God given uniqueness in creativity. And so I always tried to encourage that. We went to, uh, I took uh, several hundred, Christian artists over to Nigeria and to Ghana mm. for several years. And um, that's one of the things we kept encouraging that, you know, sound like yourself, do yeah. your music. And because uh, uh, I remember the first night we were there, they were talking about this famous Nigerian uh, singer. She was like really popular and she was going to come. And when they introduced her, she walked out on stage and she was dressed in this gorgeous African outfit. And I was like, oh, this is going to be so cool. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the Sandy Patty track comes on, and she's singing. <laughs> I'm going, what? What is this? And so, uh, you know, we had some uh, we had some artists here uh, from the States that we brought over that were into the uh, black gospel music, mm-hmm. and they got a hold of her and started working with her. I had Danny Bell come with me. Mm, yeah, and, Danny Bell Hall. Yeah, and, and Danny Bell got with her. And I mean – by the end of that week, she was up there doing her stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I was flat on the floor. It was so good and it was so anointed. And it was their cultural heart language, which is what I was always pushing for. Right. So what was the process of you shifting to, I, I know the Lord now, I've met the Lord, and I need to sing about the Lord to, I need to sing about the Lord overseas. I need to help, you know, do the, the Great Commission with my music. What was that transition like? Well, it was uh, a gradual one. I, I was uh, invited to go to Africa uh, by World Vision, and we went over there, and uh, this was in the uh, mid-80s, I think, and we we witnessed just total starvation of people. People, I had a little girl that was you know, dying in my arms, and the nurse wow. finally said, let, let me have her. And um, that touched me. I, I, you know, it was had nothing to do with music. It was just, oh my word, these people are really starving to death. And to see their their rib cages, you know, protruding yeah. out of their, you know, their their chest and and their big bellies were swollen because they were so malnourished, and their eyes were, you know, bloodshot, and their hair was turning red, which is wow. another another indication of malnourishment and to see the starvation it just really really uh tugged at my heart in a deep way and i and i just said to my wife we just looked at each we just knew we knew yeah. we needed to be there to do something and and within six months we had another invitation to go to russia and the former soviet union and uh this was in the 80s as well as a matter of fact that was i guess this was the early 80s that this happened Okay, and so we went over to Russia, and uh, I saw another type of pain, and and it was the persecution of the church. Mm, uh, yeah. and Christians, they were poor. They weren't. 
starving to death like the Africans were, but they were they were so pushed around and so abused and persecuted for their faith. And that's why today I think everybody talking about we're being persecuted here in America. We have this, no idea. It's pandemic. It's just ridiculousness. <laughs> and, and and so, but these guys were, you know, being dragged into KGB jails and beaten up. And one of the pastors had his teeth knocked out. And and I and they 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 wanted help. They wanted us to help them. And so Belinda and I just knew that you know, between the starvation in Africa and the persecution in the in, in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc nations that we needed to do something that we needed to have music with a purpose. And by that time, there were so many Christian artists going around America just playing the, the, the usual um, places and trying to build careers. I thought, you know, well, it's not about building a career. Mm. Uh, it's not that I didn't want to sell records, but, but sure. Because that helped support what we were doing, right? Exactly. But but I wanted to to touch the world in a bigger way, and 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 for God to use it for our music with a purpose and musical yeah. mission. And so I started a thing called I Care Ministries, uh, and it's international Christian artists reaching the earth. Um, and yeah, I remember that uh, we had quite a number of artists that got involved and started inviting artists to go with me and. And I'm asking artists if they could donate equipment. I, Amy Grant one time did a tour. It was sponsored by Yamaha. And when she got back from the tour, she had all this equipment. And I was talking about something in church, and she came up to us. She said, I've got a load of equipment. You guys are welcome to it. Very and cool. I, was, I was getting ready to go out of town. I said, well, I said, I don't know how I can get it because I'm getting ready to leave in the morning. She said, don't worry about that. I'll bring it over to your house. So she loaded personally loaded up her car with all these wow. keyboards and speakers and guitars and all this stuff, drove it over to, to my house, and she and my wife unloaded it into our garage. And then when I got back in another week, I distributed it out among my team, and we took it over to Africa. Wow. And uh, so we had artists giving, you know uh, – money to help buy keyboards. Michael W. Smith sponsored a keyboard for one of the bands and uh, in, in Eastern Europe. And several people would give us guitars and trumpets. We had, we had a whole thing, you know, where we were just collecting equipment. I would do concerts and, you know, how people sometimes bring canned food. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to co- I would say bring an instrument. We had all the gear that we were just... Uh, distributing uh, everybody that went on a trip with me, they, they could bring one suitcase and then they had to carry one of these instruments over. Oh, so, wow. we, you know, you know, Ephesians talking, talks about equipping the saints and yeah. we were, we were kind of doing that literally with musical equipment. Yeah. And, but we had seminars and we had uh, workshops. And as we go into these different countries, uh, which is try to help, you know, elevate their music. And, and the thing is, is there, were, there was just tons of talent. Right and great artists over there, and they just needed some encouragement. And right. oftentimes they would teach us more than we we would teach them, and you know, and just bless yeah. us more than we could ever bless them. Every mission trip I've been on has been that way. I come back, I think there's no way that they got as much out of it as I did. <laughs> right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so you said you've been to 50 countries. Do you have a favorite country? Oh, you know, it's kind of like my favorite country is the country I'm in while I'm mm. ministering. Um, yeah. I don't think there's really ever been a country that I've, I've wanted to get out of. I've, I've always fallen in love with the people. The people make all the difference. And it can, yes. be, a, it can be a difficult country 
There could be some uh, issues going on politically uh, or with the religions or something that uh, make it difficult for you to be there. But you, you, you love the people so much, you just you want to be with them and you, you want to continue with them. And that was the hardest thing is saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, one of the first trips we made into the Soviet Union, I remember one of the girls when we left, she said, uh, she said, will you come back? And I said, oh, of course. And she says, you know, everybody says that, but no one does. Mm. And I said, I promise you, I will come back until communism collapses. And we did. For 12 years, we went back every year. Wow. And, uh, and so that was the commitment that we made to these people. And uh, I love a lot of the different cultures and the history. Uh, I mean, you go to Guatemala, it's just so incredible with the culture down there and the art. Yeah. and Just the beauty and the, the way the country looks. With it's, the, it's a land of eternal spring, flowers mm. blooming, you know. But then, then you go over to... Uh, Africa and you see the the bush and the the wild animals and yeah you know but again it it all comes back down to the people and so that's I feel like I have a a family an international family and we don't travel as much anymore it's more difficult right and some health issues but uh but I tell you that's a part of my life that I'll cherish forever well what would you what would you say to some of the up and coming artists that are you know trying to get their career started about the importance of doing mission work or doing work across culturally? Well, I would say, you know, when I lived in Nashville, I lived out on a farm up on a hill and there was a, there was a farmer who lived down the hill from us and he had hundreds of acres that he would plow and prepare for the harvest. And, and uh, I started picturing him one day when he was out there plowing that field. I pictured another guy coming along and plowing along with him. And eventually I pictured more and more tractors showing up this field. And there were so many, they were banging into each other. Hmm. And then I looked in the distance and there were empty fields. No Hmm. one was plowing them. And uh, that little vision that I had sitting on my front porch kind of helped change my life because I thought I want to plow the unplowed fields. Mm-hmm. And if you're really serious about Jesus, and if you're really serious about sharing the gospel, go do it in a place where it's never been proclaimed. Uh, I mean, it's don't, you know, I think it's crazy that some of these Christian colleges have courses in how to be a Christian artist or how to get mm-hmm. into the Christian industry. That's a whole different ballgame than, yeah. than getting out there and really um, giving yourself away, give your life away. I mean, don't. You know, I mean, yeah, it's fun to sell records and it's fun to hear your song on the radio. But, you know, to stand in front of a tribe in Africa or India or somewhere in the world where they've never heard the gospel and to be able to proclaim Christ and to see people give their lives to him. That is unbelievable. And the reward for that is so much greater than I mean, I, I always tell people, you know, all of this stuff that we did, we never became rich, but we became wealthy. Yeah, we became wealthy in the harvest for the kingdom, and that's what I would say is so much more important. Go to the unplowed fields, mm. and I think you will discover an adventure that you never dreamed. I love that analogy of the fact that we're bumping into each other over here, and yet there's places that are completely open and hungry for people to come and share. Right, absolutely. Well, you you mentioned that you're you're not as active in 
traveling overseas. I know missions is still a passion for you, but uh, what other things are you passionate about? Well, you know, I think God takes us through stages in life. There are seasons, and uh, the international travel was definitely a season, a very cherished season for for our family. Um, but now that I'm a grandfather and we're grandparents, yep. uh, I, we, God has kind of given us a whole new vision um, that there are these little grandkids running around who also need to know about Jesus. Mm, yeah. And um, we, we have in America 30 million Christian grandparents. Wow. And we could change the course of America as grandparents uh, if we had but a vision uh, to be someone that would want to uh, strategically minister to our grandkids, not just bring them over and give them treats and play funny games with them, right, right. but really to have a uh, an actual agenda that we can, and not 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 supplanting the the parents, uh, but you know, uh, with with my my daughter and her husband, he's not a believer, so he has no way to train up a child in the way he should go right. other than just maybe some good morals and things, but not to really teach them the great truths of the Bible. And Jessica tries her hardest and, you know, and I, I don't fault her at all, but we want to come alongside of her. Mm. And I think she looks to us also to take the lead. And so we're, we're, we're doing our best. We're learning, we make mistakes, but we're trying to, to really, um, come alongside her and to train our grandkids yeah. in the knowledge and the wisdom of the Lord. And there are strategic things that, you know, parent, grandparents can do. Um, and this intentional grandparenting is what the Legacy Coalition, whom I'm involved with, um, what we do. Uh, okay. we, we have all kinds of classes and seminars and resources. And, you know, anybody can go to the, the website at LegacyCoalition.com. Okay. So simple. And yeah. uh, we, we were get gearing up for a huge summit in, in Birmingham this September, but it just got canceled yeah. because of the whole uh, COVID thing. But right. we're, we're trying to do some online training and uh, just, you know, like how do you grandparent long distance? I mm. mean, a lot of grandparents, their kids live 2000 miles away. How do you do right. that? Um, how do you deal with teens? I mean, they have a whole different, like I've got a teenage granddaughter and my whole communication, I can communicate better with her online uh, <laughs> than, yeah. I can, than I can face to face. <laughs> yeah. You know, her whole world is, is online. And so we, we talk back and forth. And, and of course the, the younger one, I, I, you know, we can play games, Bible games, and there's all kinds of neat ways of, um, you know, uh, investing into their lives spiritually and then praying for them, you know, praying for them. Oh, that they'll, have a, they'll have a heart to, to respond in faith to Christ and surrender in obedience. Um, you know, we pray, you know, there are all kinds of corporate prayer examples, uh, you know, pray over them to bless them. I mean, how many people have ever thought of laying your hands on your grandchildren and praying a prayer of blessing over them for, for good health and for a sound mind and, and healthy emotions, yeah. especially over my teenager, <laughs> I got to pray that, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and then to pray for, for, you know, our children um, who are, who are directly with them all the time, 24 seven, it seems, but there's, there's, um, you know, there's a great challenge out there for grandparents to get more engaged 
Yeah. And so I become one of the speakers for, for the Legacy Coalition. And um, no dates because no place to talk now. Everything's closed. But Sure. But it'll open are, up, hopefully. It'll open up. And I'm real excited. It's kind of like uh, this new mission field that God has set. And, you know, he's told us several times in the Bible that we're to leave a legacy of faith for our our children's children mm-hmm. and their children. It's almost a threefold, some places a fivefold command that we would we would leave a legacy uh, for those who've yet to come. And we may mm-hmm. never even see them, but yet the seed that we plant in our own grandchildren will be continued on as they become godly men and women. So that's a whole new mission field um, for us, and we're excited about it. So is some of your music being written around this theme as well? Yeah, actually, uh, we've done two albums, and it's their collection albums with different artists. The The first our album had guys like uh, Wayne Watson on it and Bruce mm-hmm. Carroll and Bob Bennett and uh, Steve Chapman of Steve and Annie Chapman. Oh, and, sure, yeah. Um, and and the, this new album we've just finished, uh, Steve Green is on it, Michael Card, Leon Patillo, uh, Bruce Carroll and I wrote a song for it, Bob Bennett's on it. Um, Dallas Home wrote a song, really funny, funny little song. And, um, you know, we're, these, these are albums that, uh, and you can find them at, uh, again, at, at LegacyCoalition.com. And they're just, all of us have become grandparents. Yeah. And so we all have this heart for our grandkids that they might know Christ and make Christ known. And so that's been real exciting. And writing new songs for that has definitely been uh, 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 just a passion for me. So how many grandkids do you have? Right now, two. Okay. I'm work, working on getting my second daughter married. Uh-huh. And uh, she is uh, practically engaged to a really sweet Christian young man over in Australia. Ah. But she can't get over there because yeah. they've closed it. And so <laughs> right. the, all of the plans are just on hold right now. And so the babies will have to wait. But yeah. uh, we're we're hoping for at least two more, I would pray, uh, you know. But I, I know some grandparents who have like, you know, 12, 13 grandkids. Yeah. And yeah. then some of my older friends, they've got great-grandchildren. And, and to be able to be connected to them. So I think if we think about leaving a legacy, and whether you're a grandparent or not, if you're just a parent, or if you're single, or if you're involved in Christian music or whatever your ministry is, think long-term what legacy can I leave that will bring glory to the Father? That's important. I'm involved in my church with a couple of single parent kids and realizing that they need a different kind of a touch right. than even a, a, my kids did. And how can I be involved with them and, and show the love of Christ in a way that I can't speak their language half the time? So a lot of times it's just being present just being available to talk and to invest in them. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very important. That legacy piece. I appreciate that reminder. Well, I know, I know with my, my grandkids is sometimes like all kids, they don't want to listen to mom and dad. <laughs> did we? <laughs> but, but I didn't for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but they listened to Grammy and grandpa Yeah, and uh, they, they adore them. And I've got a different relationship with, particularly my teenage granddaughter. Um, it's just a really sweet relationship. And she's going through some tough times right now. I think she listens mostly to her friends. Mm. But probably after her friends, she listens to my wife and I. And uh, 
people, we can kind of try to bring her back center and help her not to step over the line and really mess up. And uh, it's tough. I, I just look at her life and what kids are going through in high school and the bullying and all that stuff that she faces and uh, to walk with her. So she knows that we're there. And that's yeah. the important thing, you know, like for you, um, that they know you're there. Yep. So. Yep. Amen. Yeah. Well, what else is on your heart uh, these days? Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? Well, you know, I think I would say this. Um, there's a lot of speculation these days of what in the world is going on. Uh, we are definitely living in troubled times. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> I believe we've been in the end times since Paul walked the earth, but um I, I would just share with people, um, you know, it's so easy to get on this bandwagon or that bandwagon. And a lot of people are upset about different things that are going on. Right. But to really realize that God is sovereign. Amen. And that uh, he will come when he's ready to come. And we need to be people of peace and people who are speaking forth the truth. Um, yes. I, I have a tendency to watch the news too much. My wife says, Scott, you're just messing <laughs> your mind up because I'll get really upset. Yeah. You know, I read about this riot or what this politician said or what was done here in this bill. And, and it really frustrates me. And I have to keep reminding myself that God is in control mm -hmm. and uh, that I can rest. Doesn't mean that I'm not engaged and I right. pull out. I, I'm still right. engaged. And I do my part as a citizen of both the United States and a citizen of the kingdom. Yes. Uh, but to know that God is in control and uh, to just project that or, or to proclaim that um, to other people uh, right. who are really suffering right now. They say suicide right now is at an all-time high. Yes, and, um, I've read that. And, and, and it's just, we need to be people who proclaim the hope. I, I started a, a memes page on Facebook um, because I realized I was starting to post all these different political things and state my opinion. And I lost some friends and people got mad at me. And my wife said, why are you doing that? Why don't you just speak good things? Mm. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a special page, Scott Wesley Brown memes. <laughs> I didn't know what to call it. Yeah. And I've just gone back through redemptive history and particularly, you know, the last couple of thousand years, the great theologians um, that have made great statements of faith. Um, and, you know, one of the things I love to do is preach. I almost love to preach more than, than I love to sing. But I don't have that opportunity because our church is closed and, right. and other opportunities I have are, are off the table right now. Right. So in a way, it's a good way to preach. And I'm posting all these wonderful memes, these great statements of faith, you know, from Augustine to, you know, George Whitfield to, to Jonathan Edwards to R.C. Sproul to John MacArthur, um, Billy Graham. I mean, there's just so many great statements and it. Yeah. doesn't mean you have to agree with every particular point of any of these guys' theologies. But they all said some wonderful things that really capture your heart and turn you Godward. Yeah. And so I think the whole thing is, is we all need to be Godward. We just look for things that just, just move us closer to the Lord and help us to focus more on him and his truth and his goodness and his sovereignty, that he is in control. Amen. And I like that old song says he's got the whole world in his hands. Yeah. I've always believed that. And no matter how bad it gets, 
And I wrote a song a long time ago called He Will Carry You. Yes. And in the midst of all of these problems that we face in life, we can know that he will carry us. He will carry us through. Well, one of the things that we do as part of the Christian Music Archive is we send out a, a weekly prayer newsletter. How can we be praying for, for you, Scott? Well, I would ask people, please uh, pray for my health. You know, I, I'm a diabetic and I had a heart attack about eight years ago. And, um, and I'm not always good. <laughs> I see that piece of cheesecake and I say, okay, you know, but I have started walking almost a mile every day, which is great. But, but I want my health to be um, sustained as long as possible and so that I might be there for, for my family and for, for people that, uh, that God would give me an opportunity to minister to. Yeah. Uh, and for inspiration to, to write songs that have really ministered to people's hearts. Um, you know, I don't want to just sit around and write little ditties. And a lot of times mm -hmm. as, as a songwriter, and we were talking about that earlier, you know, it's, it's, you can sit down and find something really cute and clever and just try to write a song. And then it's really not from the heart. And so I want to write heart songs. I want to leave a legacy, uh, not only through my music, but I want to leave one through my life as well. Thanks for sharing, Scott. I appreciate the reminder that our legacy should not be focused on just our career or a specific cause. While those are good, our biggest legacy is actually going to be with our family, our children, our grandchildren. And I'd like to encourage us all to realize that our legacy is being written right now. Now, my kids haven't blessed me with grandchildren yet, but that doesn't mean I have to wait to pour into the lives of my family. I can build that legacy, hopefully a legacy built on a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I can start building that today. I'd like to thank Scott Wesley Brown for spending time with me today. And I'd like to thank you too, because if it wasn't for you, the listener, these podcasts would just be a recording of my conversations with friends, and quite frankly, that would be a bit creepy if you think about it. If you like this podcast, I invite you to send me an email or a direct message on one of our social media sites. You can reach me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by searching for at CCM Exchange. Or you can drop me an email on the website christianmusicarchive.com slash podcast. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. Head on over to patreon.com slash ccmexchange to learn how you can help write the interview questions for the show, hear the podcast a week early, and even get a shout-out in one of our episodes. Thanks for spending your time with Scott Wesley Brown and me today. Be sure to check back next week when I've got another great conversation lined up. And until next Wednesday, remember, God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. <laughs>